Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. Today's episode is sponsored by the program on law, communities, and the environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Lee Fennell, a law professor at the University of Chicago and the author of the book Slices and Lumps, Division and Aggregation in Law and Life, among many other works. Hi, Lee. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks for having me. So you have broad interest in several areas of law, but one focus of yours in recent years has been on questions related to kind of broadly how the law puts things together and pulls them apart, uh, pulls them apart in various ways. Uh, you have a recent book on the topic, Slices and Lumps. You have a current paper that we'll spend some time talking about today. But just, you know, kind of as background, what got you interested in this question of aggregation, how the law aggregates or not uh, the stuff in the world? Yeah, so I came to this from property law and especially from thinking about problems of land assembly that are sometimes resolved through eminent domain, um, sometimes in other ways, where it really becomes important to have a particular configuration or a particular amount or a particular chunk of something uh, of land often in order to be able to do some particular thing with it. Um, and so I sort of started from that point and began thinking about how many things like that exist in all kinds of domains and how often it is that we are only able to get value out of resources or we're only able to get value out of um, some kind of conditions or events or actions if we put enough together in usable chunks um, and so, so there's a couple of different ways that this ends up being important. One is just that we often need to aggregate things to have something of value. And a simple example I often use for this, it's not my, not unique to me, everyone uses this example, but is the example of a bridge that uh, is not really a bridge. It doesn't really work as a bridge unless you have the entire bridge to get across some uh, chasm that you're trying to cross. Uh, otherwise, it's just kind of a useless bit of uh, urban art or something if, uh, <laughs> if, there's, if there's no way to actually get all the way across. And you also don't get anything extra from the bridge after you get across if you just kind of keep on adding more bridge segments across dry land. So kind of thinking about what you need and how important it is to get exactly that amount is, uh, is one aspect. And, and sometimes, though, we have a little bit of the opposite problem where we end up getting something in a chunk that's bigger than we want, and we have to figure out how to divide it up. And so we're seeing some technologies for doing that. Um, some of them are in the sharing economy, some in other domains. But, you know, perhaps you don't need an entire car. You would like to have part of a car uh, to use in order to get kind of a, a subset of the transportation services that it can provide. And so finding ways to divide up resources also becomes really important to getting the most out of them. Yeah, it's really interesting. And so do you, you know, in, in terms of, you know, once you start to think this way, right, it's all over the place. And um, one kind of question is just how do we get the aggregation rules or the rules that are, affect aggregation or the aggregation practices um, or norms that, that we have in society? I mean, are judges or legislators actually, do you think, thinking of the problem this way um, or private parties for that matter? Or is it, you know, do we just kind of end up with a set of practices or rules around aggregation by happenstance? basically as legislators, judges, and private individuals are kind of going about their affairs um, without this in mind. Right. So my, my own view on this is that we need to have a much bigger emphasis on the problem of configuration generally, and that we need to have uh, large investments by 
government and policymakers and academics and private inter- entities as well in configuration entrepreneurship, finding ways to make um, make configuration work better. So, so I don't by any means think that the way we have things currently optimizes along this dimension at all. Um, I think there's lots of missed opportunities, lots of places where failing to attend to configuration has has left us in some kind of a, of a suboptimal state. So so my, my basic thought is that we, we need to do a, kind of a lot more to get the most out of resources by recognizing how often things are lumpy, how often things um, maybe come in lumps that, that are not useful. Now, that said, I do think there's places in the law where we do see sensitivity to this issue and recognition of it in, in various ways. And so one of those, of course, is in um, you know, sort of what brought me into this is in the context of property and eminent domain. And mm-hmm. in some of the case law surrounding that, you'll see um, the Supreme Court, for example, kind of recognizing that there may be some kind of um, all or nothing aspect to things or that it may be the kind of thing where, you know, it, 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 it requires um, doing something on, on, a, on a broad basis and not kind of uh, parcel by parcel. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes um, those kinds of rationales end up getting kind of leveraged in ways that, that aren't actually socially valuable because it, it means sort of, you know, too much deference to the planning process or something like that. But, uh, but there is something in that idea that we, we can sometimes see coming through in, in judicial opinions where there's recognition that we need a certain amount of something in order to be able to carry out some, you know, reach some social goal. Hmm. And so just to kind of um, maybe play out some an example in the environmental context or some of the ways that this applies in the environmental context. So some environmental problems are clearly about aggregation or lumpiness, um, like classic environmental problems. So, um, Maybe an example would be like a common pool resource, like a forest that everybody has access to or a fishery or something like that. Um, so that's an aggregation and it leads to some, you know, well-known sustainability problems, right? People are going to overexploit the resource basically. Now we could divide the resource up in various ways. Um, say the forest, we could divide it and parcel it out into private property, but that can leave us with other problems, right? We can have a bunch of individual landowners and maybe the up the uphill landowner like logs first in a way that leads to erosion, which is harmful for the downhill landowner or, you know, kind of whatever, right? There's, there's what, you know, we would call externalities between the properties. And so I guess I'm curious, just, you know, someone who thinks a lot about this, um, do you think in any given context that there actually is a kind of ideal way to aggregate or split up the, the resource or the rights that people have um, so that people's, we kind of get an idealized version of everybody's uh, behavior and everyone's incentives are kind of lined up with social welfare? Or do you think that really that's that's not realistic and um, it's a matter of kind of balancing trade-offs between, you know, of, of different kinds as we divide up and aggregate things up? Yeah, so, so it's, a, it's a big question and an important one. And I think that one thing I've tried to do in my work is look at some of the... Um, dimensions of, of problems that, that maybe call for different kinds of aggregation solutions. So one type of aggregation issue that comes up a lot in environmental contexts might be something like we need some kind of minimum scale of habitat in order to be able to have something that's sustainable, or we need some kind of, as you were suggesting, some kind of minimum um, population density of a particular species or, or something in order for it to be viable. 
Um, also, we might have something like a migratory pathway where we need to put together all the pieces of some kind of migration corridor. Um, one of the examples I use is the path of the pronghorn that goes through uh, part, part of Wyoming, Wyoming to let these uh, little uh, antelope-like creatures called pronghorns be able to get from one place to another, notwithstanding their, um, their sensitivity about not liking to jump over fences. Um, so if we need something that's linear, we really need to have all the pieces of it. There might be more than one viable path uh, for some things like highways that are human created. But if we have some kind of a traditional migratory pathway, it may not be really possible to, to shift that or it may be um, very, very difficult to change from what has been kind of the traditional pathway. And so I think problems are different if we have a set of elements that we absolutely have to put together every one of those pieces in order to have something that's going to be valuable. That presents a different sort of problem than one in which we simply need enough of, of, of something, but it can be configured in, in a variety of different ways. So if we need a big enough um, parcel of land or a big enough habitat patch, but there's a few different ways that uh, so, so that we don't have a, a set where we absolutely have to have every every piece. Um, it it presents a different set of problems. Um, the holdout kind of problem if we have people who are separately controlling segments and we need absolutely need all those segments can, can be uh, very difficult. If we have multiple sets that we can put together, mm -hmm. then that loosens up a bit. It sometimes can create other kinds of problems like free rider problems, because now not everyone is essential to making something valuable happen. And so I, I think kind of thinking about the kind of problem that it is, is, is useful. And the thing that I've tried to shift to in, in my thinking around environmental problems and other kinds of problems is instead of thinking about it in terms of aggregating the resources themselves or the raw materials, even though that may be really important, is kind of thinking about aggregating the cooperation of the people who control those resources. And um, sometimes that's a slightly different uh, different matter because people may have legal rights over them or they may have de facto rights over them, uh, you know, sort of a, a practical ability to um, impact the resource in some of the contexts, like the question of, you know, maybe overfishing or overdrawing from a common pool resource, um, it might be that the commoners, they don't have any individual property rights in the resource, but they have the practical ability to overdraw it. And we, what we're trying to kind of assemble together is their forbearance of, of you know, kind of getting them to all cooperate on, on, on a plan of um, not pushing us over a cliff of some kind. And so, so I think that one, one thing I've, I've tried to do more and more is think about how there are different sorts of, of subsets of these aggregation and division problems and trying to see what kinds of collective action problems they present for us. Some of the collective action problems are, are harder to solve than others, and some of them just simply have, have different dimensions than others in, in, in terms of, um, you know, is, is this something that's modeled more like, like a prisoner's dilemma, kind of a tragedy of the common scenario, or is it something else where we might have a uh, different prospects for being able to solve it. Yeah, it's really interesting. And then, and this is a, it's a very interesting move, right? Because it, it takes property law or some of the ideas around property law, at least in it really, really, really expands them out <laughs> um, to be about kind of, as you note, co collective action or coordination problems generally, which is kind of like everything in some sense, um, we can think of this way. And so one of the ways that I personally um, 
kind of separate out property law or property ideas from other um, other domains. Because um, like we could say like the, a legislature broadly is a way of addressing collective action problems. Now that we could, now that's interesting. And maybe that's a good way of, th- a good way of thinking about it is as aggregation, um, as aggregating preferences or aggregating information or, or, or aggregating uh, political power in some way. So, so that is quite, quite an interesting thing. But, but one of the ways that I also think of this related to property is kind of ownership, right? Property is a lot about ownership, who owns what and, you know, what does that mean to own things and so on? And so I, I wonder if that's, you know, if you think that's still a useful concept to be thinking about in this context and like, and maybe we just own more stuff, like there's land, pretty traditional, labor, pretty traditional. Um, you know, if you have a license, you know, maybe we should think of that as owning in a way, uh, leases, you have your bank account, um, you know, is it have to do with exclusive use, alienability, right? The right to sell or trade. Is it power more broadly? You talked about the practical ability to affect a resource. Um, do we own our votes? Do, does a politician own a political office or, a, or administrative official? So, or do we just do away with this notion of ownership? And it's really just about thinking about what people can and can't do in some sense and then coordinating them in, in various ways. Yeah, I, I think that we still can use the idea of ownership. I think it's still an important concept when we're, we're trying to think about aggregation problems. So um, I, I don't think that we can we can discard it altogether or say that everything is just kind of undifferentiated entitlements or, or something like that. Um, but I do think that the idea of ownership should become more flexible and we should change how we think about property and what, what the concept of property is meant to encompass so that it's not just about kind of some form of absolute ownership or some kind of perpetual ownership that it encompasses lots of other different uh, kinds of arrangements. Um, There's lots of settings in which uh, having something like like a fee simple uh, uh, over land is both not enough and uh, too much at the same time Mm -hmm. um, in many kinds of settings. So uh, a lot of times it's sort of uh, more than someone might need for what their what, what they're trying to get out of the resource. And one thing I've been doing recently is thinking more about how um, we can frame resources in terms of the services that they provide to us. And this is an idea that is very big, of course, in the environmental context with ecosystem services. But it, but it's more broadly true that we value resources because of what they can do for us. So if we kind of think about what services somebody's trying to get from, from a particular resource, they may not need to have kind of rights that are anchored to a particular place um, on the earth and that are perpetual uh, they might need something else, um, but at the same time, kind of having that full control might not uh, secure to them everything that they need if they're if they don't also control some of the other surrounding conditions that um, that, that determine whether they're able to use the resource in the way that they want. Um, I, I was just at, at a conference recently that had all kinds of really interesting re- research. I'm always trying to look for, for kind of real world examples. And I'll, I'll probably get the details of this one wrong, but, um, but, but one of the presentations there involved a, a setting where I think it was sort of in uh, an Arctic region where there had been a change in the way that that what what kinds of uh, poisons were allowed for poisoning wolves and it ended up changing the viability of this grazing land for pastoral people there who were, who were trying to graze uh, reindeer I think and um, it, it ended up that they then needed to sort of move where they were grazing in order to avoid 
the, uh, the the wolves that now were not being controlled in this way that had now been banned. And they ended up actually, I think, seeking uh, this area of land to graze on that was really that was really on the property of some uh, mining that was some industry where, where they were able to then kind of get de facto rights to be there. Mm. And even though they had actual rights, like land rights to the place that no longer was useful to them, this is like kind of a good example to me of like, what they had kind of land rights over no longer was useful for the purpose they needed it. What they then migrated to, they didn't have any land rights over, but they were able to use it in a way that was useful to them. So it's kind of an example where we think about um, property in a more fluid way and think about what it is that we actually need to own in order to get the services that we want, which is is kind of a, a long-winded way of, of getting at uh, your, your question. Um, the other thing I'll say about, because you mentioned legislatures, is that I think in lots of contexts, we have kind of a second-order aggregation problem that lies behind our ability to put together resources in a, a particular way. Um, and so we might first have to put together enough science or enough knowledge or enough votes or enough whatever in order to be able to get to the place that we can um, both perceive what the problem is, see how to solve it, and have um, you know some mechanisms that would enable us to uh, to actually put together the, the the resources themselves. So I, I think that sometimes we have these nested problems, and mm -hmm. if we think about the question of you know kind of lumpiness or needing um, a certain amount of something, like voting is obviously a setting that's like that, where you know it's like getting almost enough votes is not going to do it. <laughs> right. No, it's really interesting. It's, uh, and in a way, it's almost like, well, wait a second. Now that we are thinking about it this way, does that actually make a whole heck of a lot of sense, right? Like there's no difference between, well, let's say at least sometimes in legislatures, there's no difference between a, year, a nearly unanimous vote and, you know, whatever number gets you over the relevant threshold, 50 percent plus one or, you know, some supermajority threshold. And, you know, that's a little weird in a way, right? Because, you know, the nearly unanimous um legislation has a lot more popular support than the one that um, is 50% plus one. But that's just the way, that's just the way it works, right? Yes, exactly. Um, so one of the, um, yeah, so just returning to this, you know, the the stream of benefits idea, right? So you say in the in this paper that, you know, um, that we're talking about, talking about this property law is thought about controlling access to things um, often, but it's really about generating and delivering streams of benefits to people, right? So the, the, um, the grazing, Example is a really good one, right? Why do you care about having this particular piece of land? Because you want to graze with it. And if you can't graze on it, then it doesn't really have much value to you anymore. Um, so as I was thinking about that, like really that's very broad in the sense that a lot of law is about generating and delivering streams of benefits to people, right? So, um, uh, you know, when the government uh, offers public schools um, for kids, that's, that generates a, a stream of benefits um, for people. Or the military generates a stream of benefits, or, you know, in terms of protection or kind of whatever, right? I'm, I'm just curious, in your mind, how do you separate out um, property law um, from these, you know, all of the other things that we might do through law, like, or regulation could deliver, you know, delivers a stream of benefits to people? Or do you think actually these boundaries are not really that useful to police. And, you know, we should just be thinking much more kind of, um, uh, you know, kind of across these different legal domains. And we should just, we, we should be using different tools and different kind of mental models rather than the traditional legal categories. 
Yeah. So I think that the reason I'm especially interested in, in property as, as kind of a, a separate uh, domain here is that we have this concept of ownership and we have this particular way that the law uses property and property ideas to try to um, get services from certain kinds of resources. So in other contexts, we're already kind of aware that that's what we're up to. In property, I think it's maybe a little bit less accepted because one of the sort of traditional ways that property arranges the world is that by granting some owner, um, you know, naming someone as owner and granting them some kind of dominion over a resource, the idea is that they're kind of in charge of that service provision of that resource and that it's up to them to kind of go out into the marketplace and get whatever inputs they need to get it to yield services for them and that the, they then get those services that, that they then are in charge of those. And the law in that context has a very specific set of jobs to do. Um, it's solving particular kinds of collective action problems to make that model work. And the jobs that the law does traditionally involve things like keeping other people out of the domain right. so that there can be the ability to, to get services in this way. Um, and, and so I, my uh, feeling is that the law is now needing to solve lots of additional kinds of collective action problems in order to enable resources to stream benefits to people. Um, and so the traditional model, I think, no longer captures what law's job should be in this context. But it's of interest to me because that's kind of our starting point. And thinking about the way that the model has traditionally worked and where it falls short, uh, I think really ends up being important in thinking about what are the, you know, what, what's, what does the frontier look like in terms of, of changing our understanding of ownership? And because we already have a model of ownership that, that's pretty rigid and kind of um, anachronistic, in my view, uh, we think about what are kind of the, the ways that we can move from that. Um, into something that is more focused on configuration, more focused on, on service provision. The kinds of moves that are available to us, I think, are partly defined by the way in which these kinds of, um, uh, of rights and interests are, are currently framed. So I'm in favor of shifting the way that we think about it, but I think that we are moving from a baseline that's very different when we're thinking about property rights than if we were in some other uh, domain where we were talking about some other kind of policy decision that's understood to be the domain of a, of a collective body. Hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, um, one of the arresting images that I, I got out of the book is kind of re relevant to this is, you know, like on the one hand, you talk about the kind of traditional, the farmer on the farm, and, you know, uh, going yeah. to market, picking up, you know, uh, fertilizer, buying labor, right? Where we're, we're kind of, we interact in these very stereotyped ways and the pretty effects on each other are, uh, are fairly limited. And then, and, you know, there's really good reasons to reject that. And this, and this image that I kind of, it was stuck in my mind as I was reading is, you know, that there's really, what's going on is there's a vast and complex machine <laughs> with many interrelated dependencies and it's kind of whirling away. And I quote unquote own some small part of that machine, but the value of that ownership is completely dependent on what's going on in other parts of the machine. And just to make that concrete, you know, I live in the town of Charlottesville, my house its value is entirely dependent on the, the roads and bridges that lead here, on the electricity system operating, on sewers that are functioning, um, on what other local economic actors are doing. If the University of Virginia picked up and left, um, you know, that would have a huge um, uh, consequence for, 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 for 
the value of my what I own. Um, so I guess so. Then the question is. Um, so, so that's a very arresting image. And then what does this mean for how we think specifically about property, right? Does, what, what is it about this shift from, you know, the farmer and the handful of stereotype relationships to, you know, owning a little component of a vast and complex machine that requires this major shift in, um, in how we think about property law? Yeah, so I think it, I absolutely like the way that you described kind of the way that the value of, of your property is dependent on so much that surrounds it. And this is something I've, um, uh, that, that, that I've really thought, thought a lot about and focused on a lot in, um, in, in my writing is the fact that so much of what you sort of your investment or, or what you have with your property is just a function of, um, of other people's decisions. And so I think recognizing that fact ends up being really important. And it's not as if it's gone kind of unrecognized. We know that in the homeownership context that we have uh, very, very alert uh, homeowners politically mm-hmm. uh, in terms of wanting to control what happens around them. And this is sort of Bill Fischel's home voter hypothesis that homeowners end up um, taking political action in ways that are designed to to reflect the fact that they have a large kind of undiversified investment in their property that does not uh, lie under their control, uh, under their individual control anyway, and that they then have this desire to kind of uh, impact what's happening around uh, around the property in, in all kinds of ways. And, and some of these impulses are um, maybe kind of functional and good because it makes them good citizens and care about what's going on. But some of the other some of the other aspects of it are, are really negative and problematic because it may lead to kind of um, risk-averse behavior that is very exclusionary and, and, and so on. So when we think about kind of how can, how can property uh, kind of thread the needle of you know, giving people some kind of uh, resource that they, that they have some special relationship with while recognizing that they're part of this larger value production machine, um, that 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 is I I think the, the challenge and to be able to do it I think it requires uh, altering what we understand to be kind of the default ownership packages that people have and the way in which they are um, uh, the way in which they understand their relationship with all of the other pieces of the uh, of, of the sort of matrix that they are a part of. Um, so there's no longer this model, like like as you're saying, sort of stereotypical model of, of of the farmer kind of owning a standalone value production factory that's confined largely to the parcel, where we just kind of worry about keeping people out um, and kind of maybe managing spillovers around the edges. Instead, it's kind of a question of how do we how do we um, approach the problem of managing resources when we have people's ownership stakes that are kind of at a much smaller scale than where all the action is really happening. And this is true for both environmental issues and also for just sort of urban landscapes where everybody's piece of a particular um, metropolitan area, for example, is going to be very impacted by, by what, else, what else happens around it. Um, and so, so I guess just to sort of think about how traditional ownership fits in here, it has the potential to block the ability for there to be um, sort of positive returns generated from the 
ability to kind of aggregate together resources in, in different ways and to get uh, different services from them. If every owner kind of has a veto over their own little piece of the urban landscape or their own little bit of nature, then it can uh, it can provide an impediment to being able to put uh, things together in, in, in various ways. And so kind of thinking about how to alter our understanding of ownership so that when people are becoming owners, we sort of fit what their ownership means to the problems that are the most important ones that we face today, which have to do with configuration and the ability to make things reconfigurable. So the challenge is how can we make a form of property that gets some of the good stuff that we like from ownership, like um, giving people incentives to invest and, and those kinds of things, while at the same time, having it follow a, a, a more flexible model or, or a model that is more reconfigurable at its core. Um, and, and so some of the ways to try to think about doing that maybe alter the, what we understand people to own, whether we understand them to own something in perpetuity, whether we understand them to own something that is uh, just sort of very firmly tethered to a particular geospatial location, or whether we understand them to instead own some kind of a claim on a stream of benefits and we think about how that claim might cash out in ways that would be consistent with letting um, their, you know, sort of letting the configurations evolve in ways that would that would provide more value. Yeah, this is really super interesting because you know one of the you know things that the um, terms that you're using there is change how people understand these things, right? So the, property is a legal phenomenon, of course, but it is really also a, a cultural phenomenon as well. And, um, and so in a way that that's a really interesting thing to think about, you know, kind of the interaction of law and culture, um, to generate outcomes. And of course, culture is going to affect law and law is going to affect culture around these things. Um, I mean, eminent domain being a great example, like the law can change or we can come clear or less clear. And then, you know, there can be a cultural shift. Um, you know, part of the, the limit on eminent domain isn't legal, it's, it's cultural, it's political. What, what can a, a municipality or, or any relevant entity kind of get away with? Um, so just in thinking about that, um, you know, kind of property as a, you know, at least partially cultural phenomenon, um, you know, you, you talk about, right, so, you know, if we live in this dynamic world with high levels of independence and things are always changing, it's good um, to be able to change things up in terms of how we how we configure our property. Say, um, we need to have mechanisms for ongoing orchestration and ad adaptive reconfiguration. And that sounds, you know, very sensible. Um, there's a big premium on being adaptable in a dynamic environment. But there is a component of property, and you've, you've thought a lot about this, I'm just curious what your thoughts are, um, both you know, as a legal phenomenon, but certainly as a cultural phenomenon where there's a, a very big um, premium on stability and continuity and reliance interests and the like, right? The theory is, you know, I invest in my house because um, I know what it means to own my house. I can have, I believe that it will, you know, that that understanding will be stable over time and it's not going to change. And so therefore I kind of make long-term decisions. I can plant the tree, right? That will bear the fruit in 30 years because I know that, you know, the relationship that I have or whoever the property owner has to that tree will be kind of the same and will be stable over time. So, so yeah. So how do you think about in the, in the environment that we have now, which is very dynamic and very interrelated, this balance between, um, you know, the kind of opposing values of stability and, and adaptation. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, I, I think that when we think about property culturally, there is this kind of fundamental contradiction that is continually playing out. And it's that on the one hand, people have this sense that what they own is somehow theirs in some kind of absolute way. They have a lot of dominion over the thing that they own. Um, at the same time, that's not really a realistic way for people to hold property. And that is also recognized in, in uh, the way that property cashes out in our everyday lives. So people, in order to get those kind of stability benefits that you're discussing, are, of course, doing things like resorting to either covenants or zoning or some kind of land use controls to try to stabilize what happens around them, recognizing that their own dominion over their parcel is not really enough to deliver those kinds of benefits. Um, once we start to have that be part of the model of ownership, then, of course, it becomes impossible to also have that complete dominion over your individual parcel while at the same time you're trying to control everything that happens around outside of your parcel and your neighbors are kind of trying to do that same thing. So we have a model of property that is kind of this uh, home, home is your castle and you know, absolute dominion and all this kind of rhetoric that, that we hear. But at the same time, the reality is that people are very constrained in what they can do on their own property um, currently. It, it's not as if like it's completely open-ended and you can just do whatever you want. Um, most places are going to have zoning regulations. Many people live in private communities that have even stricter kinds of controls on what they can do with their property. And they're constrained to using their property in, in very, very defined ways. And at the same time, there's this idea, yes, it's it's uh, your property, you can own it forever, it can, you can, your family can be on the land forever, but then we, of course, have eminent domain that comes in and is like this brute force solution to the fact that allowing people to have a veto over their piece of the world forever is not uh, always going to be a feasible alternative. And so, again, we have this kind of contradiction that there's this understanding that the property is absolute, that it's always yours, that you can always say no, that you don't have to sell it. But then there is this kind of um, response of eminent domain that can come in and take it away altogether. So we're kind of toggling between these different visions of property and what it means. And there's this kind of fissure between uh, the kind of absolute understanding of ownership that's part of our culture and then the reality of how property is. It's also part of, of, of the way the world is and sort of a familiar part of the world. Um, and so what I think would be the right direction forward is to kind of try to close that gap between expectation and reality or between the different impulses between absolute control over what you own and the desire to control what other people own. Um, so I think what, what's needed is a way of um, kind of changing the understanding of property so that when people go into ownership, they're, they're opting into something, or at least they have the alternative of opting into something that is not as absolute and that is understood at the outset to be opting into something that that's more um, that that is more reconfigurable or where there can be changes, and that their ownership bundle is, is simply um, adapted to be something that's that's a more realistic form, and then then it could potentially, I think, actually end up being more stable in some ways because it would be in line with what the initial expectation expectations are. And if we think about stability, not in terms of 
standing on the same exact footprint of land forever, but in terms of stability and the services that you're trying to get from the property, then I think there's room to set up institutions that can deliver that very stably. So one, one example I, I talk about often is um, in, in many, many countries, there is um, uh, sort, of, sort of an alternative approach to eminent domain um, land redevelopment uh, sort of sort of alternatives where there where there would be the ability to um, basically allow everyone in a particular area that's being uh, developed and this is goes up usually under the name of like land readjustment that that you would um, allow everybody who's in a particular area to remain in that area but Perhaps if people are currently, let's say, on, in single-family residences in an area where it's experiencing growth and it makes sense for there to be higher density, that they wouldn't have a veto claim over their particular parcel, uh, their particular footprint or lot. They would have a claim to continue residing in that area and occupying land that is at least as valuable as the land they currently have or occupying a property unit that's at least as valuable as what they currently have. And that would leave room for changing around exactly how that area is configured, putting in some mixed use and some parkland and some higher density, and then having there be an option to return. And so you still have the capacity to have the continuity of um, that area that people might be seeking, but not necessarily on the exact same physical footprint. And I think there's a lot of heterogeneity, I will say, in what people are seeking from land. So I'm not suggesting that there aren't people out there who do seek the service of having access to the exact same physical land. But I think a lot of times what people are wanting, the kinds of stability they're wanting, have to do with their position spatially relative to everything else that's important to them around them. Um, and that maybe it's less about the exact meets and bounds of, of, of their particular lot. Yes, it's really interesting and, and um, you know, puts me in mind of the idea that, you know, there are lots of different cultures of property, right? So as you mentioned, the, you know, that's the, the um, arrangement that you were describing um, exists in, in other parts of the world. And even within the U.S., you know, people have different views of what property means and what it should mean and, and so on. And I'm, I'm just wondering, it's kind of just occurring to me and I'd be curious what your thoughts are, if... You know, so we have a big urban-rural political divide in the in the country, obviously, and and there's lots of different dimensions to that, and and folks talk about it in different ways, religiosity and race, and many many things <laughs> um, get mapped onto um, this this particular divide. But one that really strikes me as almost like fundamental in the description of the divide is. Um, is ideas about property that the, um, you know, in an urban environment, um, a lot of people are not landowners, a lot of people are renters. So they are exactly signing up for a stream of benefits. Um, landowners are in condo, you know, they're in condos, they're in other co-ops, they're in different kinds of uh, ownership arrangements. Um, you know, you're, you, you know, even like your car, right? You might be more inclined to rent a car than to own a car and you have a parking space, but like you just have a parking space somewhere. You don't own the, under, the underlying land. Um, whereas out in a rural environment, you're much more likely to have um, you know, the, the kind of the, the good old fashioned property, right? Like you mm -hmm. own your chunk of land, there's inputs, there's outputs, you interact with your neighbors in some pretty stereotyped ways. And then at the, the suburban interface is just, you know, a, a kind of a spectrum um, that, that runs from the city to the, to the, to the rural environment, depending on the exact configuration. Um, 
So, yeah, so I'm just curious what you think about that, how the environments that people grow up in might affect how they think about property. And then, you know, does that tell us anything about, about contemporary politics and, uh, and anything that we could do to, to, to try to bridge some of these gaps? Yeah, I, I think you're, you're quite right that there are uh, sort, of, sort of differences, um, rural, urban, uh, different kinds of regional differences and so on that, that may affect kind of what people are using their property for, how they're thinking about their property, and even what would be the right kind of solutions to think about. I do think there's a lot of interdependence that is out there, even outside of urban areas, when we start to think about some of the environmental examples as well. So I think that the need for adaptability and sort of dynamic responses and flexibility is there um, kind of in, in many different settings, but the form that would be most useful, I think, in moving from our from our current understanding of property to to something that's more dynamic might might vary depending on what kind of uh, of context we're in. Um, so certainly, there can be more dynamic solutions in rural areas that account for things like uh, migration and sort of the coexistence of different species and those kinds of things that could be consistent with a continued ownership of the particular land parcel. Um, there, there's a lot of innovation, uh, that, or at least some innovation going on around these kinds of, of, of ideas. Um, one of the examples that uh, I've, I've become interested in, uh, other environmentalists as well are interested in this, is um, this idea that the Nature Conservancy has been doing called bird returns that is sort of a very short-term micro land leasing sort of idea whereby they use all these kinds of, um, of, of techniques of monitoring to try to figure out exactly where birds are going to be migrating in a given year or given season. And then they do some kind of a reverse auction to kind of find out what farmers would be willing to flood their fields rather than, you know, I guess for growing crops for a period of time in order to flood their fields and have it be like a wetlands area that can be part of the migratory path for birds and uh, sort of finding out where where they can most um, affordably put in wetlands along the migratory path has been something that kind of brings this dynamism in an area where we might think about land uh, ownership as still having very much this this sense of, um, of of owning the land and the land itself being very important, but at the same time it's not inconsistent with having some kind of dynamic structure that's overlaid on that that would enable kind of a dynamic response to something like a, like a species migration. So that's a, an example where that's not a, a government. Uh, policy that's something that is that's a private kind of entrepreneurial effort. And so thinking one of the things I'm very interested in is to what extent can we do entrepreneurial efforts that just work with our existing understandings of property in some contexts and just add on to that um, different ways in which we are kind of lowering the transaction costs or, or finding a way to come up with different solutions. I think that there are contexts where, where private solutions may work. There may also be areas where we can kind of um, give them an added boost by having the law involved, not necessarily in a coercive capacity, but in a capacity of being a focal point, in a capacity of setting standards, a capacity of creating clearing houses for different kinds of interactions that would allow um, for, for there to be voluntary uh, sort of transactions around making property operate more dynamically, even when we're talking about areas that are outside of urban centers. Yeah, there's an interesting um, you know, relationship between coercion 
and voluntary transactions in the in the property context, right? Because in a sense, I think traditionally, right, we would think that the goal of property law is to set things up to enable, you know, lots of different kinds of voluntary transactions that are mutually beneficial. Um, but the you know the structure of property itself is in a sense a, a course of it involves a, the course of active government. Like again, traditionally, trespass someone comes on your property. Um, you call up the government, you can get them removed. Um, and so, um, so so that is interesting. And so in, in the example that you use in the, the wetlands, the government could act, you know, could act in the role of the nature conservancy there. It could come up with the funds through the course of use of its power of taxation, of course, mm-hmm. um, but it could come up with the funds in a way that's much more effective than the nature conservancy. Um, but then it would pay people for these services Um and maybe you know, creating a market where people could bid in or whatever, um, much more voluntary than say a regime um, that's been much in the news recently, which is our standard wetlands protection regime, which was recently the subject of a major Supreme Court decision, um, dialing it back substantially, which is you know very much a property law style thing in a way. It's very closely related to property where we're basically saying, um, you know, there's a whole host of activities um, that you might wanna engage in your property that you know would be harmful to wetlands that we're just going to say that you can't do and you don't opt in you don't opt out you don't bid there's none of that there's not really compensation um, it's just these are the rules so um, so yeah I'm so I'm just curious is that is that part of the attraction of property too um, as a solution or the kind of what you referred in the paper as property moves like creating focal points or um, uh, creating a clearinghouse these are property moves as opposed to reg- what we might say regulatory moves of saying this is what you can and can't do. Right. So I, I for sure don't want to say that there aren't places where regulation and coercion are needed. I think there are. Um, but I also think that there is often a lot of potential to do more with um, law than that and to do it in, in ways that would allow people to opt into things. And uh, finding ways that we can do that non-coercively is going to is going to be better politically, I think, um, for just sort of thinking about it strategically. But it, it may also end up helping us get to a better place with how property operates generally. So um, one of the challenges, I guess, when we think about property moves is what are our default property packages like? And are they are they set up in ways that make it even feasible to have these kinds of voluntary interactions, is it going to be something that 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 can that can actually work at scale and can you know sort of deliver the kinds of benefits that we need? I, I think we don't fully know the answer to that, but there is a lot of room for looking at what we might be able to what we might be able to achieve by having um, the government in a role of supporting entrepreneurship through a bunch of different kinds of, of initiatives that that let uh, that provide ways for people to put together. Their, uh, their current holdings in different ways. Um, the more that we're able to do this and have a more fluid understanding of property, the easier I think it becomes to get to a place where maybe we start to change what the default property packages seem like, how, how they actually operate uh, initially, or what people are buying when they, when they buy a piece of property in the first place. So, so I guess I want to say that part of what we're facing currently is a transition problem in that we have expectations around property that are very old and they're like suited to different kinds of problems that we're trying to solve now. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's partly about kind of how do we transition from that to something that's more flexible. And, and so I think that's, that's an aspect of the problem. And then there's sort of an aspect of the problem of like, what would be the right way for property work 
if, if we were able to kind of um, get to a place of starting anew, like what, what would that be like? Um, and I, I'm a fan of property. I think that, that property rights uh, continue to have an important role, but I think that what they would look like if we were kind of developing a system um, from the ground up now um, under conditions where our biggest issues are, are urban issues and environmental issues that are so incredibly inter interdependent that we would have a different understanding of what would be our baseline property rights. So I, I think there's partly an issue of like, how do we move from what we have to something different? And then what would be the sustainable model um, sort of going further out in the future of how we interact with how we interact with resources generally? Yeah. Um, you know, it would be super, uh, very different from traditional legal scholarship, but if you could find a, a science fiction co-author and work <laughs> with the science fiction co-author and offer you, what would, you know, what would, you know, a society that was built on fundamentally different um, notions of property and property rights, but, you know, faced similar kinds of problems to the one that we face now, what would that look like? I mean, it would be, I don't know where you would place it, but it would be, a fa <laughs> I think it would be a fascinating thing. Absolutely. Um, and what would be like, say you were, we were imagining from the ground up, what, you know, what, what would that world look like? Or say you were, you know, a consultant on a new, on a new city that was going to be developed out in the middle of the ocean or something, you know, what, what are the big changes that would we just do away with fee simple altogether? Um, would property look much more contractual? I mean, the thing about contracts that's different from property, of course, is property runs with something, right? So like I can do a cool thing with property on my, on, whereas I can um, have an easement and allow my neighbor to walk across my property. I could do that through a contract, contractual arrangement as well, um, where no property changes hands. But then, you know, um, whatever, if my neighbor, somehow that, that right turns out to be super valuable and then I impede them and I cause all kinds of loss, you know, their, um, their right would go against me um, and I could be bankrupt or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas it would run with the land if it was, um, if it was easement, of course. So, um, so that's cool. We probably wouldn't want to do away with that altogether, but what are, what are the things that you would, if you, if we were developing from the ground up or if we imagined, you know, that this is a point that we'd like to get to, what are some of the big, uh, big differences from the, the current structure that we have. Yeah. So I think the two big differences that, that I've, I've thought about um, are sort of changing the perpetual nature of property ownership and changing its geographic fixity to particular points on earth. And th those are, I think, the two things that introduce a lot of rigidities into property and make it very hard to change things around. So I think those are those are what I would be looking at if we were kind of developing a new system. And I, I've, I've written about this a little bit. I have this this uh, this paper called "Be Simple Obsolete" mm -hmm. that uh, that kind of talks about those ideas a bit. And there I am kind of thinking about like, what if we had um, maybe some kind of blank slate somewhere? We had like a place that people were opting into and acquiring property um, initially. What would they What would they be acquiring. Um, if we had something where people were opting in to some kind of shorter cycle before there could be some kind of readjustment move or something like that, um, that would be sort of one way of doing it. We could also have things, I think, set up in a way that's very much based on using options. Um, so we could have something where people's property rights are understood from the outset to be kind of callable 
in the way that a financial instrument would be callable if certain conditions hold. Um, if there's certain kinds of population changes, if there's certain kinds of other uh, triggering conditions mm -hmm. that then call for there to be some kind of change in the way that the property is configured, that there would then be some kind of strike price at which it could be reacquired from people. And, and, and so kind of having that structure set up, um, I, I think, would be uh, a, a very different way of understanding property, but it would in some ways be a more honest way because it wouldn't just be like you are the absolute owner of your property until you're not because we have imminent domain that comes in. It would be instead we have some kind of a uh, way in which maybe there'd be different sectors of the city that would be on different staggered timelines for, for potential redevelopment and uh, the folks that are holding property under this system could work together. Um, in some cases, it might be that they could come up with their own solutions that would keep some kind of triggering condition from happening that would result in uh, in, in their property being being uh, called and uh, have, having there be some kind of um, some kind of reconfiguration move. And um, so I've, I've thought about kind of and I, you know, the, the ideas I've come up with in this domain are not like ready to be implemented out of the box or something like that. But the concept would be something like you'd have a, a set of options on a group of, of contiguous properties that would be sort of of a scale that would enable some kind of a, of a uh, redevelopment of that area under certain kinds of triggering conditions. Um, without having to put the entire thing within the envelope of a single owner. The other way that we can make property operate a little bit more flexibly is to kind of take seriously the idea of the single owner. Like if we have a single owner who owns um, tons of stuff, then of course they can just rearrange stuff within their holdings and do things more efficiently. But there's a lot of disadvantages to having property ownership be that concentrated or having ownership occur at that kind of scale. So I think a challenge is to try to have uh, ownership continue to be, have their property rights still recognized at some kind of a scale that would allow for lots of individual ownership, but that would not allow that understanding of individual ownership to get in the way of being able to reconfigure things at scale. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, um, I mean, in a way, look, the call option is what the government holds through sure. eminent domain, yes. right? Um, but maybe, you know, maybe you could allow a private owner periodically, once every 50 years or something. Right, um, right. You could have a, an auction and if the, some price was exceeded or something like that. Yeah, no, it's a really, um, it's a really interesting, a really interesting idea. Um, you know, one, you know, since, since we're talking uto in a t utopian <laughs> a register, um, you know, there are um, kind of new domains in property that are, well, that are arguably in the property-ish area. Um, you know, things like NFTs, um, you know, uh, people's rights to, uh, you know, to, to buy or sell their genetic information, um, you know, privacy data, the, you know, these are areas that are, they're new and they're contested who owns what under what conditions and so on. So do you think that there's any, anything interesting happening in these domains or is, are they just getting sucked into the vortex of how we always have thought about these things or, um, are they just uh, sideshows to the, to the, um, to the main event? Yeah, so so these some of these are areas that I that I don't I don't know a ton about, but I think my interest would be like in, in thinking about them would be like to what extent is aggregation um, a factor? And I think certainly with respect to some of the, the privacy and data use things, like aggregation is the whole game. Mm -hmm. I mean that that's what that's what provides value. And so thinking about what should be 
the right regime for ownership within something where the aggregation is what gives the value. I think some of those problems may have structures that are they're in some ways similar to some of the more you know terrestrial based um, kinds of examples that, that, I, that I've thought about. Um, of course, obviously, once we start to move to kind of um, intangibles, there may be other things that uh, there may be resources that are non-rival. There may be all, all kinds of different ways that they that they operate. Um, but I do think that it still works to ask the question of how much is the value a function of aggregation, and how much does that um, how much does that impact the way that we need to think about the way that rights are configured? I will say also though that in in that context and also just in in uh, sort of real property context, there often will be competing aggregations. Mm-hmm. And we'll be like, we don't know which one is more valuable kind of uh, from first principles. We have to kind of have some way of, of assessing that. So in the real property context, it might be that you have a, an aggregation that is a wonderful close-knit neighborhood. And you have another aggregation that would be, you know, putting through a highway. And those are maybe incompatible aggregations or maybe ways to bring them into alignment, but there may not. And so kind of thinking about, you know, do we do we need every piece of this? And I think going back to the idea of services is helpful in that context. Like what services are we trying to get from from these resources and how do we how do we um, try to compare them? And at least putting them both into the language of aggregation is, I think, a helpful move, because then at least we understand a bit about what's at stake. So as we think about new you know, sort of, sort of new areas, um, kind of thinking about what are the competing aggregations that are that are at stake in, in those areas as well, and are they incompatible with each other? Or are they are they ones that can be um, that, that can somehow be uh, served simultaneously? What kinds of services are we trying to get um, societally or individually from those kinds of resources? Yeah, right. That that makes a lot of sense. So so maybe the last. Um, uh, the last, last thing I wanted to touch on is there's a quote in the in the paper, property looks um, less like a space cleared by law and more like an agenda set by law. The content of that agenda is politically mediated and its distributive implications show through in the collective action problems that society does and does not choose to solve. Um, and so I just thought we might um, talk for a little bit about this question about distribution and inequality. And, you know, obviously that's a longstanding critique of property, just in general, is the system of property is that it's a way for uh, the rich to perpetuate their unequal standing. Um, and so I guess my question is, are there property moves here that could help if we think of um, inequality as a kind of aggregation problem, you know, the aggregation of wealth and political power, or um, are we just outside the domain of property and, and it's this is a problem that we have to address through, you know, other means, regulatory or, you know, um, direct legislation or, or, or the like, or um, so, yeah, so that's the question. Are there property moves to be made here or is this just outside the bounds of what we think the property system can can kind of helpfully address? Yeah, I do, I do think that there are potential property moves that we can make in addressing inequality. I think that it is um, important to look at the distributive implications of the way that property is set up. And so one thing that I, I, I've thought, thought a bit about, and I have a, another um, another little essay that kind of gets into the inequality aspect of this a bit more, but um, one of the issues is, again, going back to the idea of property creating services for people, in order for those services to be created, it's never the case that like the individual owned object or piece of land is enough to create everything that people need. And so one thing, one phenomenon that of course we see and many people have commented on 
is that the government will collectively provide all kinds of compliments to particular property holdings. So standard example is you know, providing highways that make it possible to live in these far-flung suburbs that makes the highways make the, um, the suburbs more valuable. Um, and so kind of the political processes deliver certain public goods to uh, make, to sort of activate the service flows of particular people's property and maybe to not activate the service flows of other property. So I think the move here is kind of to recognize the degree to which we have um, the services being provided by property being a function of these kinds of political and essentially distributive decisions um, and finding ways to kind of interrogate that and make uh, it possible to see alternative ways of, um, of configuring property or alternative ways of having public goods um, operate as complements. So there might be a different set of complements that would be more valuable if we had, um, you know, if we're sort of focusing on kind of denser uh, environments, it might be that having sort of public transit kinds of, of uh, complements would become more important or having public parks as complements become more important if people are in smaller units that don't have their own backyards. If, if the people have their own backyards, then the complements that they may seek don't involve public parks and might involve more highways and those kinds of infrastructure. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not certain that I have real solutions beyond kind of trying to make it make it lay, lay it bare that the ways in which um, property complements are developed hugely impact the value of people's property holdings and that all those things have distributed implications. Yeah. Oh, well, it's super interesting. And that lens is is super helpful. And I think, you know, it, it likely has something to say about many, many, many different contexts, often many of which are often framed in environmental justice terms these days. And we might think of environmental justice and, and property as, as very different and distinct areas of law and distinct ways of looking at the world, but maybe um, there's more overlap there than than we might than we might recognize. I think that's right. <laughs> Uh, so Lee, yeah, great. This has been a really um, interesting uh, conversation. Um, thanks for taking the time to uh, to chat with me today. Um, and thanks for all the wonderful work in this space. It's super thought provoking. And um, yeah, uh, it's been a, it's been a great, a great chat. Well, thank you for having me on the show. It's been really fun to get to talk about my work and um, yeah, and, and hear your ideas about it. Thanks so much. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. You can give us a like, a rating, subscribe to the podcast, and follow us on social media. It'd be great to hear from you. Till next time.